Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Jeremy, and it is a pleasure to be um, opening God's Word with you guys this evening. So if you have a Bible, um, could you turn to John chapter 10? If you've got a church Bible, I wonder if someone could just um, read out to us the reference. John chapter 10. Um, just someone let us know what page that's on when you find it. 1574. John chapter 10. Really, this evening, I want to take you to really one of the key moments of Jesus' ministry where he really um, explains to us more um, about his identity. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I think this is really helpful. It'll give you a really good insight into the claims that he makes about himself. Let me read the passage to you. John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought all, out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So he goes on to explain it using a very similar metaphor. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief come, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. For there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and it is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus, in chapter 9, had just opened the eyes of a a man born blind. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just thank you for the the truth that is in this passage that you tell us about yourself. Would you reveal more about your character to us? Would you reveal what it means that you're our good shepherd? Would you speak to us? Would you speak through me? Would you uh, help us to to come under your your shepherd-like authority in our lives? Amen. I wonder what you think when you hear that, uh, that passage, perhaps it sounds a little bit sentimental to you, a little bit 
twee. You know, it sounds a little bit like a, a nursery rhyme. You've got kind of a, a shepherd and sheep, and you might be thinking, what on earth does this have of relevance to my life as an urban Londoner? I know many of you here are Christians, and so you probably have heard this passage before. And there's a danger that it becomes over-familiar to you. That actually, you've heard it so many times that you kind of say, well, doesn't it really just say that Jesus is nice and that he cares for you? Is there anything really more to this passage than that? Well, this evening I want to show you actually that this passage is actually more challenging and actually more offensive than you realize. That's really in, in two key ways. The first way that I think it's more, more challenging than we typically realize is that it puts you in the position of a sheep. Now, being a sheep is not a positive or complementary comparison. Sheep are unintelligent animals. They uh, can get trapped in bushes. They can fall down uh, ravines. You know, when a, when a sheep gets uh, lots of, lots of uh, kind of wool clothing, you know, it kind of grows its, its whatever, whatever you call that, its mane or, or fleece. Thank you, thank you. Uh, when it grows its fleece, it gets so, uh, such a large fleece, when it falls over, um, it can't even get up. It's kind of just scrambling around with its legs um, on, the, on the ground, and it needs a, a shepherd to come and right them. Actually, sheep are also a mob kind of animal. They, they, walk, they go in, in a crowd, and, and you've all heard the line, don't be a sheep, because you just kind of follow each other. The irony, of course, is that actually we're more like sheep than we realize, that we actually do end up measuring our life somewhat by what other people are doing. But really, the essence of, of what it means to be a sheep in this passage is really saying you need a shepherd. You're not able to independently lead your life. Shepherds are absolutely essential in the lives of sheep. They take them to find good grazing ground. They keep them free of disease. They protect them from predators. Essential to this metaphor is that the idea that you cannot independently lead your life. The second uh, really challenging and offensive thing that this passage is, ma- um, is claiming is really Jesus is making an ownership claim. Really, he's claiming that he is the master of your life. He's, he's making a claim about his authority, that he is the rightful leader of your life, that you are made to follow him. You see this in a few ways in the passage. In verse 3, he says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 14, I know my own and my own know me. Jesus is claiming that the sheep here are his own. He compares himself with a hired hand and says, you know, the hired hand runs away quickly when the wolf comes to attack the sheep. Why? Well, because the hired hand doesn't own the sheep. He's been hired to look after them, so he doesn't really care for them. This passage... um, is reminiscent of a passage in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 34. And it's, it's almost certain, yeah, def- definitive, I would say, that Jesus has uh, Ezekiel 34 in his mind. And this is um, a, a passage where Jesus is, sorry, when God is talking to the rulers that he's placed over the people of Israel. And he calls them shepherds. He's placed them like shepherds over the sheep. But he has some very harsh words for these rulers. They've, they've failed to look after the people of Israel. And so instead, Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 15, he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. 
He goes on to explain the metaphor that we have in this passage when he says, in verse 32, you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God. So really what what we get in this passage is that God is making an ownership claim of his people. And Jesus is making the same claim of ultimate authority to lead his people. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm not suggesting that in some way uh, Jesus is, is controlling your life without you being aware of it. But what I'm arguing that is that he is making a claim that he should be in charge of your life. What he's saying is actually you are not your own. You're not the master of your own soul. Actually, you were created by God and as a result are accountable and beholden to him. You're responsible to him. Really, this is the very definition of what a Christian is. It's not someone who just simply does good things or, or even just someone who simply believes that Jesus is God, although I think that is a necessary prerequisite. Really, the definition of a Christian is someone who recognizes this authority claim in their life, who follows his commands, who is sought, seeks to be led by the Spirit of God. So we hear this, but actually I think this assertion... This ownership claim, it jars with us. It runs counter to our instincts. We live in an age which puts a strong value on independence and autonomy. In fact, I would argue that this claim that Jesus is somehow the leader of your life is not something that would appeal to most Londoners. Think about uh, the language in 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 the political arena. Think about the, the Brexit campaign, take back control. Think about the Ireland um, abortion referendum from this week. The language that's used to defend the the ability to have an abortion all centers around control, a woman's right to to choose or control what's going on with her body. It's called the the pro-choice movement. Really, the the logic behind that argument is one of saying that 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 woman should have control over her body. You see this in the advice that we give to one another. You know, we'd say things like, if we were struggling in some way, we might say, well, you've got to be your own person. You know, my colleagues have turned to me sometimes in my more idiosyncratic moments and said, you do you. Be authentic. Assert yourself. You know, many employers run uh, assertiveness training. Really, our advice all centers around the assumption that you know what's best for your life. Of course, the irony of, um, is that we've hit a generation, the millennial generation, that would say we have all the freedom to, uh, to make decisions, but we lack an understanding of what to do with that freedom, that we're unclear, we don't have a central narrative or, or central um, understanding of how to live, an overarching narrative. Think about ethics. The central question, whenever you're kind of making a life decision, the, the, often you'll hear people say things like, well, does it make you happy? Really, the central question is, what do you want and does it make you happy? And really behind this is the idea that we'll be happiest when we have the least external constraints on us, when we're perfectly free to make decisions, when we've got no people telling us what to do, we've got no governments telling us what to do, and heaven forbid, God telling us how to live. So how do we resolve this tension then? How do we um, hear... Jesus' ownership claim, this assertion of authority over our lives 
in the context where many of us almost instinctively feel that desire to be in control. I think the first way that we solve that is actually by recognizing that although we have the rhetoric, very common rhetoric of not constraining our freedom, actually we don't live like that. We all have goals and objectives. And we often constrain our behavior according to those goals and objectives. If you want to run a marathon, you take time to train. If you are trying to get ahead in your career, you're often likely to give up free time in order to improve the work that you do or improve your skills to to get ahead. If you have a relationship, if you um, start going out with someone, it's likely that you're going to put time into that relationship. And if you don't, then probably that relationship's going to end. We all make sacrifices because we believe they're worthwhile. We believe it's good for us in some way. It's in your interests. And that's something of what Christians are doing when they choose to constrain their freedom to follow Christ. But we've got to remember here that Jesus is not making a kind of arbitrary uh, constraint, a set of arbitrary rules. Really what he's arguing, uh, what he's asserting here, is for you to recognize and obey his personal authority in your life. Now, when you're considering whether to allow someone to have either influence or personal authority, to exercise their authority over your life, I think it really depends on what you think of that person. If I was to say to you, uh, for the next 10 weeks, I'm going to tell you what to do, I'm going to direct your your efforts, five days a week, eight hours a day, I'm going to give you instructions, and you're going to have to follow my commands... Well, really, how you'd feel about that would depend on what you thought of me as a boss. If you thought I was going to be fair, if you thought I was going to be calm and positive and encouraging, you think, okay, that sounds like a good idea. If you thought I was going to be aggressive and demanding and unfair, then you'd probably think that sounds not a very nice idea. You'll have to ask James, our intern, what the reality is. But really, your perception of whether authority is good news for your life depends on your perception of that authority. In fact, really the question is, do you trust that authority? Think about any kind of leadership relationship, any kind of authority being exercised, and it requires those who are being led to trust those in leadership. Think about when a football club um, fires their manager. You often hear statements come out of the board, things like, well, we've, we've lost confidence in, in his ability to lead us. What we're really saying is, Um, We don't trust him to be able to lead us to the objectives that we've set him. Any kind of leadership relationship requires trust. So when we consider what would make a Christian willingly forgo their freedom to follow Christ, what we're really saying is that they trust him. That actually they say, this is the the best thing for me to follow this God-man, Jesus Christ. Actually, this is precisely the claim that Jesus is making here in this passage. This whole idea of him being good shepherd is that really what he's saying is that he is the only leader who can be trusted. He's the the best leader for your life. You can see this kind of trust going on in the passage that that we read in verse 3 when he comes to collect the sheep. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. They hear his voice. They come to him. I don't know if you've ever been in the countryside and you've come to a flock of sheep and you come up to them. Normally, they don't, they don't come up to you. Normally, they move away quickly. They kind of think of you as some kind of predator. Actually, here, it's the exact opposite. The, the shepherd, the, the gatekeepers open the door. The shepherds come to a sheep and they recognize his voice. 
They come to him. They follow him. There's a, there's a relationship of trust between the shepherd and the sheep. Actually, this is exactly uh, what, what, what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. But not only is he calling us to it, I think he's actually giving us reasons why we can trust him. And I want to show you three big reasons why you can trust Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Where in fact, he's the best leader, the only leader who can be truly trusted for your life. Now, you might say, well, I'm a Christian. I already follow and trust him. But I would, I would argue there's a difference between theoretically trusting someone, theoretically following and trusting them, and functionally following and trusting them. If there's an area of your life which you're aware of what God is calling you to, but actually you, you know that you don't, you're not following him in that area, I would wager that actually the reason often why our lives don't match up to God's calling is because we don't trust him. Think about giving. You know, the command, the calling as a Christian that your life is going to be a life of generosity. Actually, if you're not generous, it may well be because you don't trust God when he says, actually, I'm going to, be able to, I'm going to provide for your life. I'm going to provide for you and keep you. Perhaps you find yourself getting bitter and resentful towards God. There are circumstances in your life or commands that he, he's calling you to that, that feel too difficult, that don't feel fair. Actually, behind that kind of bitterness and resentment can be a, a wrong view of God and really a lack of trust in him. So this evening, as we look at these three reasons that Jesus is the, 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 truly the only leader who can be trusted, I think this will help you to, to, to um, really choose again to trust him, really choose again to, uh, to see that he is, he is really the good shepherd who can be trusted. So the first reason then that he can be trusted is that he is the self-giving leader. Really, all the way through this passage, we get a very different type of leader presented to us. And really, I think what, what, what Jesus is is focusing on is his character and motivation for leadership. If you think about in the world outside, most people pursuing leadership are probably pursuing leadership for their own ends in some way, whether that be reputation or the rewards of leadership or the recognition, the applause, the financial rewards, whatever it is. But actually what marks Jesus out is that he's motivated very differently. He's driven by a willingness to give himself for those he's leading, a choice to sacrifice himself. See this in a couple of ways. First of all, you can see it just in the metaphor that Jesus is using to describe himself. He describes himself as the good shepherd. And really being a good shepherd is a life of tremendous sacrifice. Uh, this great book by uh, Philip Keller, don't believe he's related to the famous Tim Keller. Um, he's an agriculturalist, a shepherd uh, and a Christian Bible teacher. And it is a, really, he written this book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And all the way through, as he goes through this uh, Psalm 23, which is all about the good shepherd, he, he really um, draws from his experience of looking after a flock of sheep. And it's really fascinating. I really recommend it to you. But he describes the life of a shepherd as really utter devotion to the sheep. You're up early in the morning. You're checking whether the sheep are okay after the night. Um, you're, you're often might be out late into the night looking for a lost sheep. You've heard the parable of the, of the lost sheep and uh, the, the shepherd who goes off looking after the one lost sheep. Because, of course, if that shepherd's gone, there's a very real chance that they're at the risk of, um, of danger and death without, um, when they're not encased in your, in your pen or, or, or whatever you have for looking after your sheep. 
Keller describes sleeping with a flashlight and a stick ready to attack anyone who would go and attack or steal his sheep. In fact, the Middle Eastern shepherds that Jesus is describing here would often have slept out amongst their sheep to protect them. So really, this this metaphor is a picture of utter devotion to the sheep. But Jesus also puts a special emphasis on literally giving his life for the sheep. You can see this a number of times in the passage. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 15, says, just as my father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. See, Jesus is not talking figuratively here. Really what he's saying is the key reason that he can be trusted is that he is nine chapters later going to lay down his life to be crucified And you heard in verse 17, take it up again, to be resurrected three days later, thus proving that he's not just some kind of human sacrifice. Actually, he's God in the flesh laying down his life for humanity. The crescendo of Jesus' ministry is not just a brash declaration of his authority, although I think consistently throughout the Gospels, he is clear about his identity. Actually, really, the crescendo of his ministry is an act of total self-sacrifice out of love for his people. You can see the motivations behind Jesus' act. In verse 13, he contrasts himself with the hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep. Actually, the the reason behind him giving his life is it's an act of deep and sincere love. Keller describes the kind of love that might be between a shepherd and a sheep. when he says, "Um, I recall quite clearly how in my first venture with sheep, The question of paying a price for my use was so terribly important. They belonged to me only by virtue of the fact that I had paid hard cash for them. It was money earned by the blood and sweat and tears drawn from my own body during the desperate grinding years of the Depression. When I bought that first small flock, I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. Because of this, I felt in a special way that they were, in very truth, a part of me and I a part of them. There was an intimate identity involved, which though not apparent on the surface to the casual observer, nonetheless made those 30 ewes exceedingly precious to me. And of course, you can tell something is valuable to someone by how much they're willing to pay for it. And Jesus demonstrates the the value of the people that he's willing to die for them, ultimately because he, he values them by his life. He's willing to pay the ultimate price for the people that he dies for. He's willing to give his life for them. He summarizes it in John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. This is not a kind of soft or soppy love, but it's a real love proven by Jesus' act of sacrifice. And I think this marks Jesus out as a very different type of leader, both from those who've come before him and those who come after him. He he, He is Um, intentionally drawing a comparison, first of all, with the leaders who come before him, um, comparing himself with the Pharisees. In verse 10, he he describes the thief coming only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they have have life and have it abundantly. So he's referring to these other kind of people who are not coming for the good of the sheep. Actually, they're operating through selfish motivations. Similarly, the hired hand is running away when the wolves come, 
is really motivated by self-preservation. Jesus is comparing his motivations with the leaders who've come before him. Take the Pharisees in chapter 9 who um, have seen a man healed from blindness. But what's their response? They're not overjoyed. They're not celebrating the miracle of God in this man's life. They're not happy for this man who was born blind and can now see. Their response is to, to debate whether it's legal for Jesus to heal a man on the Sabbath. And then really to try and prove that Jesus is a sinner. They've got, they're, they're, they haven't got this man's best interests at heart. They don't really care. They're, the religious leaders, the people of Israel, they've been given a responsibility to care for the flock. But yet they're doing exactly the opposite of that. In Ezekiel chapter 34, um, when God rebukes the shepherds, it's very similar uh, accusation, very similar problem. This is what he says to them. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you have ruled them. God's message to the rulers, the people he put in charge of the people of Israel, is they'd failed as shepherds because they were motivated for their own ends. They were fundamentally selfishly driven. And actually, Jesus is the answer to this. Jesus is the good shepherd come to replace the, these, these failed shepherds. Uh, at the end of this passage in Ezekiel 34, he talks about, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, really one shepherd in the line, in the lineage of David. Uh, Jesus is descended from uh, the king of Israel, David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, I talk about Jesus, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Jesus is the good shepherd to come to replace these failed shepherds, these selfish rulers that God had put over the people of Israel but had failed. But I also think Jesus is, is comparing himself, or, or at least we can, we can draw the same comparison with the leaders of today. Actually, the character and motivation of love that Jesus has in leading his sheep marks him out from leaders that we see in our society. Across the public square, leadership is not characterized by this attitude of love. Often we see the exact opposite. We might hear a rhetoric of public service, but actually our politicians are not driven by that same motivation to care for the people they have to shepherd. You can hear a retinue of um, past presidents uh, around the world today who, who probably claimed in their campaign promises to be for the people who actually are currently in court for bribery, corruption, fraud, who were who shown not to be pursuing the welfare of their people. Nicolas Sarkozy, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, President, President Lula da Silva of Brazil, uh, the, the former Angolan president, dos Santos. There's a, there's a retinue of global leaders who have shown themselves to be not seeking the welfare of their people. I think it's almost, almost you're, you're just so, um, you're so used to this, you're so, you're almost, it, it kind of doesn't... Um, doesn't shock you anymore, but actually Jesus is exactly uh, is kind of the exact opposite of those kind of leaders. I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who is an audit manager for one of the big four, and he's working seven days a week at the moment, having just, just too many clients, too much demands. And I said to him, "Why don't you talk to the partners? You know, you're a manager; you can talk to the partners, speak to them." He said, "Oh no, they're, they're not. When I talk to them about my work-life balance, the main thing they're saying to me is 
deliver me my product. Each one of them's got him on a different assignment. And he said, what they really care about, what they're asking is making sure that I deliver the product for their project. Actually, they're not fundamentally interested in my um, needs. Now, of course, there are always examples of managers who are nice. I'm not talking about niceness. I'm not talking about um, kind of good management. There are lots of good examples of that. But what I am saying is that leaders in our, in our culture are not driven by the same attitude of love. And actually, I don't even think it's the system. I think ultimately it's a problem with the human heart. You will have seen um, Bishop Michael Curry, his sermon at the royal wedding. And whatever you think of his sermon, what's really interesting to me is the way his sermon captured the world. The next day, his sermon was printed verbatim in every newspaper. And what was really interesting is what captured, when you listen to his sermon, when you read what he had to say, what captured people's hearts was this idea of love, this same love that motivated Jesus. And actually, the bishop spoke about... um, how different our world would be if love was the driving motivation. I think as people heard that sermon, they said, actually, yes, that's true. The love that Jesus is operating with is very different to the way our families are run or our organizations are run or our our whole society is run. Actually, this love that Jesus is operating with is not present in our culture. And how different, how beautiful the world would be if it was. I think this also speaks to our our kind of disillusionment, this, um, or rather, should I say that autonomy and independence that we um, so characterise as our culture. Because actually that autonomy and independence has come about really as a, as a kind of response to a historic disillusionment with authority. As we've seen different scandals about politicians, the expenses scandal in the UK, or journalists with the phone hacking scandal, or religious leaders with things like clergy abuse, or even financial institutions, when it was the the bankers who caused the credit crunch. Actually, we've we've become disillusioned with those people who've been placed in authority. And part of what drives that kind of desire for autonomy, that that independent streak in us, is a kind of conviction that you can't really trust those people who've been put in authority. I think Jesus would say two things to that. He'd say, well, actually, yes. In a sense, to those of you who struggle to trust authorities and want to be in control of your life. Yes, those other leaders have acted as thieves and robbers. Actually, then they're not motivated to lay down their lives to you. They don't love you. But no, you've missed that I am the true authority that can be trusted in your life. Trust me, because I laid down my life for you. I think this understanding of the character of God is essential for the Christian life. It's easy to see God's commands as a kind of arbitrary set of instructions, really, that just curtail our freedom or frustrate us. Actually, we obey them because we believe they're put there by our good shepherd, who is good, who can be trusted. And so we can follow them, knowing that they're for our good benefit. Think about... um, you know, this is a common one in our context. So you're Christian, you're single, you'd like to be in a relationship. And for whatever reason, you haven't found someone of the um, opposite sex who's a Christian. But someone comes along who um, wants to date you who's not a Christian. And you feel torn. Perhaps you'd really like to be in a relationship. Perhaps you even like this person. But you know um, 2 Corinthians 6, the instruction not to be unequally yoked. Really what he's talking about is the instruction not to marry or date a non-Christian. Now, your ability to happily follow that command 
as a single person will be directly dependent on whether or not you believe that Jesus is the good shepherd. If you see this in this passage and you say, yeah, actually you are good, you are trustworthy, then you can follow the command. You might say, look, this is really difficult. This is hard. I, would love, I, I really would love to do that, but, I, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to say that you are good and I'm going to go your way. If you're not, one of two things will happen. Either you'll, you'll uh, act in sin and you'll go against God's commands, or you'll become bitter and resentful. So really, it's so essential for the Christian life that you understand this, that you see that he is the good shepherd. If you're going through suffering or disappointment, your ability to endure suffering is pretty much conditional on whether or not you believe this truth. Again, if you're going through suffering and you don't believe that he's the good shepherd, you'll probably become bitter and angry. You'll say, why are you allowing this to happen to me? But if you can hang on to this truth, if you can believe, no, actually, you are the good shepherd, you are good, you're trustworthy, then you might say, well, I still don't understand. This is hard. You might still be asking God why. But you'll be able to say, I know that you are good, perhaps through tears, perhaps through uh, kind of a a sense of resignation. You say, I know that you love me. And the reason you'll be able to say that definitively is not your circumstances, but the example of Christ's death on the cross. But of course, it's not just how and why he gives himself for you. It's what he gives for you. He is the one. He's not just the archetypal leader, but he is the one who gives life. Second point I want to draw your attention to is that he is the life-giving leader. You see, at the center of this passage center of the claims that Jesus is making about himself in this passage is that he is the good shepherd. He is the one who brings life. Verse 10, again. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The center of Jesus' claim to be the good shepherd is that he is the one who brings life. But what do we mean by life? Well, I think first, of course, we're talking about eternal life. Jesus is speaking really into the greatest existential sense of despair. I would probably argue the the thing that causes the most disappointment and sadness in our lives, the prospect of death. We might try to escape it. We might try to ignore it. But the reality of death is probably the most difficult thing for every human being. And yet Jesus is speaking right to that, that reality and say, actually, That's not the case for those who follow me. In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he's talking about Jesus' sacrificial death, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Saying if you believe in him, if you trust him, that you will receive the gift of life for eternity. You'll one day be in a place where there's no more crying, no more mourning, no more suffering, and crucially, no more death that you'll spend eternity with him. And if you don't believe him, if you don't trust him, actually there's a warning here that you'll not be with him for eternity. Actually, this is really what the Bible calls hell. It's not saying that actually if you don't follow him, if you don't believe in him, you don't trust him, that your life just ends at death. Actually, it's worse than that. He's talking really about life continuing, but in a place where, where God is totally not there. The absence of God, where there's no love, peace, joy, all the good things of life. That's a really sobering warning. But Jesus is promising here for those who believe and trust in him, eternal life, the end to death for those who believe and follow him. 
But it's easy when you say something like this to think, well, is just Christianity just a trade-off then? Do I just need to kind of live a, a kind of life devoted to Jesus? Do I need to just kind of tick some boxes so I can really have a satisfying life afterwards? Kind of pain today for jam tomorrow. Is that the Christian life? And I think historically, some people have thought of Christianity in that way, that it's a matter of deprivations and, and kind of whipping yourself and all those different things that invo- like you kind of imagine a medieval monk um, really, all as a way to then achieving it's this eternal life that Jesus is promising. Now, there is a grain of truth there that, yes, Jesus is going to call you to lay things down. Jesus is going to call you to a life of self-denial, of sacrifice. And we can explore that another time. But to stop there misses the point of what Jesus is saying here. A central thrust of what Jesus is promising here is not just life that continues What he's talking also about is a rich and satisfying life. This eternal life that Jesus is offering actually starts now. And Jesus is bringing this abundant life for his followers. All the way through the Gospel of John, um, some of you know uh, Jen and I lead a life group, and we've been looking at the book uh, book of John this year uh, with our life group. And um, got a kind of group of people, different places, some are Christians, some are not, and we're kind of all examining the claims that Jesus makes about himself, looking at the Gospel of John. And what's been fascinating as we've looked at the Gospel is how much Jesus seems to be making this theme of eternal life, both being eternal life, the end of death, but also being a rich and satisfying life. Think about John chapter 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well, and he talks about living water. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, talking about the water that comes from this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become water welling up to eternal life. Yeah, clearly he's talking about eternal life after death. But he's also talking about never being thirsty again, satisfying you. Water that means you're not thirsty. Think about John 6. Jesus, speaking after feeding the 5,000, he talks about bread of life. He describes himself as the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never be hungry. I think he says never be hungry again. Forgive me, I said never be thirst. But, um, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, I'll never be hungry. He's talking about life satisfaction. Jesus' claim about life is never just about that it goes on forever. Rather, he's actually making a claim about the abundant, satisfying, full, and rich life. Some people have said it's like, almost like um, going from black and white to technicolor. Actually, there's a claim that life is much more rich and satisfying when you follow Jesus. So Jesus is the leader who can be trusted because he brings this full and satisfying life. I think this speaks against the prevailing reason in our culture that most people would reject Christianity. Because probably most people, when they look at it, they'll probably say, well, yeah, I'm a hedonist in some way. I believe that fundamentally you're meant to be happy. And so really, and when they look at Christianity, they say, well, really, isn't it just a, a matter of depriving yourself of the, really, the things that make you happy in life? You know, no sex before marriage, no drugs, no getting drunk, you know, going to church each week. The Christian life doesn't really look very fun to people. Actually, Jesus is making quite the opposite claim. Actually, the only place to really find true and lasting satisfaction is in Christ. 
Matthew, in Matthew 13, he puts it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. So it's not that the man had to, had, didn't have to make a sacrifice. He sold all that he had, but he did it in joy. Actually, the Christian life will involve laying things down. It will involve sacrifice and denial, but it's always because Jesus' claim is that he has got a more satisfying and more life-giving life than we realize, than we've had previously. What does this mean? What does this look like? Well, I think the first way is it's really, it's not a temporary high. The kind of satisfaction that Jesus is talking about is a lasting satisfaction. Most of the conventional good things in life, the things that make us happy, whether it be holidays, good meals, maybe an exciting assignment at work, maybe just friendships. Actually, almost all those things are transitory. They come to an end, even friendships. You might move into a new city and uh, you've had really rich friendships in one place, but you move on and you you drift apart. Actually, Christ's satisfying love is very different to that. He's making a claim that actually this is lasting lasting satisfaction. When you wake up every morning, there's not a doubt that that, the the holiday has faded, that that good thing has come to an end. Every morning you wake up, the knowledge of Christ's love is there. I was looking at the story of a lady called Tracy, a physiotherapist, 30 years old in London. Um, She's a lesbian. She she had a girlfriend. She hated Christians, and she thought they were homophobic. And um, it's on this fantastic website, Living Out. do encourage you to have a look. It's um, lots of people who are Christians, have same-sex attraction, and, and uh, kind of living the full Christian life. Really, really good. Um, and uh, when she became a Christian three years ago, um, obviously she gave up the, the prospect of being in a relationship. She knew that uh, Christ's command was to only have... Um, the only context for a relationship was marriage between a man and a woman. And so, so she's decided to be celibate and live a single life. And, um, and you might think, well, really, aren't you the craziest person in the world to follow Jesus? Because for you, it's going to mean not being in a relationship. She said, I'm only attracted to uh, girls. I can't ever imagine being married to a guy. So, so you know, I know there'll be so many in our culture who'd say, you're just crazy. But she, she had this to say to those people who would say she's crazy. She described her relationship with Jesus as the one thing that doesn't change. The only thing in your life that you can fully depend on. Everything else can be taken away from you, job, money, people you love, but your relationship with Jesus can't. And that was the reason, that's the bedrock of her hope now, actually, that she might say, well, you might think I'm crazy, but actually I have a permanent relationship with Christ which cannot be taken away from me. I also think this changes, the, this kind of life that Jesus is calling you to is rich and satisfying in ways that, that if you're not Christian, you might not fully have ever experienced I think it changes the direction of your life. As you receive God's love, as you become aware of his goodness, actually it starts to change you. It starts to change the orientation of your life. You're no longer living only for your own happiness. Actually, you start to live the happiness of others. You start to be about God's business. You start to be involved in, in, in loving others, in sharing with others, in, in you know, bringing the good news, helping other people experience the love of God. And as you do that, as you start to orientate your life around caring for others and loving others and bringing the good news about Jesus, actually, I think you'll find there's nothing more exciting and satisfying than being about God's mission. Actually, you find a richness in life as you start to lay down your life in the same way that Jesus has laid down his life for you. I think about um, my brother and his wife got married about the same time as us. 
And our, since we got married, our lives have taken radically different paths. Yeah, they've got friends, and they have them over, and they you know, do hospitality. But if they look at our lives, they'd say, there's something weird. You, know, you guys are always having people over. You're always sharing your life with other people. You're always um, inviting people over who aren't Christian and talking to them about the Christian faith. You've opened your home. You're, 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 you're spending yourselves on behalf of others. And, and most people, when they look at that, would say, well, isn't that a bit reckless and a bit stupid, and you're not really looking after yourselves? Actually, we found the exact opposite. Actually, we find it a deep satisfaction and a joy in being able to do that. And actually, as we look at our lives, I feel it's so much richer than, than, than either what it would have been or even as I look at my brother and his wife because I've got all these wonderful relationships. I'm living in community. I've had the joy and privilege of seeing people's lives changed by Jesus. And that is a rich and satisfying life. That is the life that as you receive the love that Jesus brings and as you start to share that with others, you start to experience a real joy and transformation. brings me very briefly onto my third point. The reason Jesus can be trusted is that he is the essential leader. The problem with using the term leader to describe Jesus is that it makes him sound replaceable. You know, we think about any organization that you're part of, you know, leaders come and go, right? New boss, new CEO all the time. But the picture Jesus is, is giving us in this passage is quite the opposite of that. Actually, it suggests that he's the essential leader of your life. Again, this is clear from the picture that Jesus is using to describe himself. A shepherd is vital in the life of the, in the, of the welfare of the sheep that he's looking after. Verse 3, he's the one who takes them to good pasture. Verse 12, he's the one who protects them from the wolves, from the, from the predators. Keller talked about ticks and parasites, uh, wolves, sheep rustlers, even conflict between the sheep. Or that sheep that is cast down and can't even get itself up. You know, there's all sorts of danger for a sheep. It's almost unnatural for a sheep to be out without a shepherd. It's an animal that's been bred for, for dependence. It's impossible to live without the shepherd. And so the picture here is saying, really, it's impossible to live without Christ. So I think this is both a comfort for those of us who are experiencing something of the good shepherd, but it's also a warning of what life without Christ looks like. For a Christian, I think it's actually a, a, a warning not to, not to slowly and gradually drift away from Christ, not to wander away from him like a, a sheep, just kind of wandering into another field, saying, oh, maybe I'll find some good pasture here, and actually detaching yourself from the good shepherd. It might be kind of naive or almost unconscious. I think actually one way this manifests itself is a kind of expectation that you can do the Christian life without God without spending time with God, without being attached to the good shepherd. Almost unconsciously what you're saying is, I can be righteous, I can be good, I can live the Christian life without your help. I don't need the tools you've given me. I don't need to spend time with you in, my word, in your word. I don't need to pray to you. I don't need to spend time with other Christians to change my heart because I can kind of do this on my own. And this kind of independence is exactly the opposite of the way uh, that Jesus is advocating here. You heard that in verse 14. My sheep, I know my own and my own know me. They recognize his voice. They're familiar with him. They know him. That takes time. You don't become familiar with someone overnight. Actually, there's a kind of familiarity and a knowledge and a trust that is only comes from spending time with someone. So please don't fall into the 
think the, the trap of thinking that the Christian life is just a set of abstract moral principles that you just need to kind of follow. Actually, you need to realize that this is a shepherd. He is a shepherd who's calling you and calling you under his authority. Actually, the Christian life is simply a walk of believing in, trusting, and obeying the good shepherd. And that involves listening to his voice week after week as it's preached on Sunday. As it, day after day as you read your Bible, as you are led and led by the Spirit of God in prayer. And none of that can be done by shepherding yourself. But finally then, if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear the warning in this picture. To live a life without God is commonly understood almost as the default, the norm. Perhaps it feels like the kind of subconscious, the, the, the normal thing to do, almost the stronger thing to do, in the sense you'd have to rely on an outside influence to help you to live well and make decisions. But really what you have to hear is the picture here. Jesus is saying, actually, if you're a sheep and you're without the shepherd, that actually it's a dangerous place, that you're living in jeopardy, that actually there's a thief. I think he's not only talking about those leaders who failed the people, but also talking about Satan, who will rob life from you who's come to steal and destroy, who doesn't have your best interests at heart, and actually you're vulnerable. You've left yourself in jeopardy. And the call from Christ is simply to allow him to be your good shepherd. Come and join my flock. Come and know that I am the source of all life. I am the only one who can be trusted. I am the essential leader in your life. In a moment, we're going to take communion, and that would be a great time just to dwell upon his good shepherding, to dwell upon and remember the gift of life that he brings, that picture of his death on the cross, the body and blood being broken and shed for us is a picture, a guarantee of his good shepherding and a knowledge that he can be trusted. It may be also a good time if, there's, if there are things that you, that you hear maybe where you feel a, nug, a nudge of the Holy Spirit where actually you're not trusting God with, it's be a great time also to respond to that, to say to God, actually, I want to trust you again. I recognize that you are the good shepherd. I don't, I don't find following you always easy, and I don't understand this, but actually I know that you are good. And if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to allow the bread and wine to, to pass you by, but to consider whether or not Jesus really is the good shepherd to be trusted. And you know, if that at all provokes you, then we'd love to talk about it with you. Why don't you stand? I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we want to uh, repent of not believing, not seeing how much of a good shepherd you are. Perhaps some of us feel like we've wandered away from your authority we want to come back under your authority. We want to say that you are our good shepherd, that you are the only one who can be trusted, that you've given your life for us. We want to say thank you for that, Lord. We want to treasure that fact. We want to receive the, the good, full and rich and satisfying life that you offer. We want to say no to sin, know that actually that's the way of death and know that obedience to you is the way of life. So we want to go that way, Lord. We want to be obedient to you. We want to receive the life that you've given us. 
want to live this full, satisfying life. We want to be about your business, about taking this life into the world, inviting others to experience the life that you've given us. And we just recognize that you are our essential leader. There's nowhere else we can turn because you have the words of eternal life, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen.